This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here with David Canfield. Hi. This is the first ever triple header interview episode. Um, it's the end of Emmy season, which is why I think we're getting so many great names right at the end. Uh, Emmy voting ends next week. So, David, you and I uh, got to talk to Ron Howard, Gerard Carmichael, and Taika Waititi. And I think Ooh. we both wish we could have gotten all three of them in a room together, right? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's start with you and Gerard Carmichael. Uh, he had this really breakthrough special with Rothaniel out earlier this year, which kind of, like many stand-up specials, I feel like just kind of appeared out of nowhere, but also included uh, breaking news in it, um, but was also really great. And I think all of those went into why you wanted to talk to him, right? Yeah, I, I watched a screener of it before it premiered, meaning before the news broke out of the special, which is that he comes out as gay in the special. Um, and I was just so knocked out by it and so impressed, not only with um, the candidness and the um, openness with which he talks about his own struggles with his identity and his family, um, but really the style of the special and the confidence with which he um, engages with the audience and Bo Burnham's direction is also so smart and careful. Uh, so I, I just thought it was pretty much a masterclass in, in the form as far as confessional stand-up goes. And um, yeah, I finally got to talk to him about it. I've been, I've been, I've been wanting to do it for a long time. <laughs> I don't even think I realized Bo Burnham directed it. That's such a, a great, uh, you know, just bring all the huge comedy stars in one place uh, combination. If there were a special that, that deserved it, I think it's this one. <laughs> well, let's hear your conversation with Gerard Carmichael. Gerard Carmichael, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, you're here to talk about Rathaniel, uh, your HBO special, which really knocked me out, knocked a lot of critics out. Uh, everyone's talking about it. How does it feel? <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> How does it feel? I don't know. I'm like in the house, man. I'm like just in the house, smoking weed and reading. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I wanted to start by asking you about the month in which we are talking. It is Pride Month. Uh, of course, you come out in the special. This is your first Pride Month being out to the world. Uh, have you done any Pride things? <laughs> have you have you embraced it on a larger level? What has it been like? Uh, 
If having sex with men counts as pride, then yes. That definitely counts as pride. Okay, well then yes. Then I've been celebrating all year. We're both celebrating pride then. (laughs) Yeah, then I did it. (laughs) No, it's it's good. It was funny. I um uh uh Pride Month, like it's June first. I had on like my little IG thing. I in my calendar it said first day of Pride, and then it said Mom's birthday. And I just thought that was hilarious. Oh, man. man. (laughs) I was like, that's very, that's very, that's making me believe in God again. (laughs) Some kind of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually didn't stop believing. I got to stop joking like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is also, we must acknowledge Emmy season. And you're talking about, you mentioned your mother, uh, a very personal project on many levels, um, on this awards podcast. And and I am curious how that part of, you know, talking about the special and talking about your life has been for you in a context that is, um, you know, promotion, a little promotional and also a little bit, um, you know, quite exposed. I'm, I'm just wondering how that has been. It's been okay. Yeah. I have conflicting feelings about that. Right. Because uh, on one thing, I, I, I would always prefer to just, release things and then they just are released (laughs) and then you find it and i'd like to you know go and work and and then come back when i have something else to say uh but you know promotion is just that i i do want people to see it it's the best work of my life so far and it means a lot and it's very like you said it's very very personal um so when i'm promoting it, it feels weird because as a piece of art as a thing that I made I want everybody in the whole world to see it but then as a thing to like say like tune in (laughs) you know like you know to uh, it just feel that that feels a little false and even this very thing here like because I was thinking about this like you know the little gold men podcast like it's like I I, like I I don't necessarily I I don't know how to talk about it you know because it's such a, a real thing uh in, in many ways, do I think I deserve gold for it? Yes. So it's a, it's like, it's a conflicting feeling. Cause as a craft, as a piece of art, I love it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. a, as a, you know, personal document, it's alive, <laughs> you know, like, and, and changing all the, you know, so yeah, it's, it's all conflict. Yeah. And I imagine there's also the element, I mean, speaking personally, it it really touched me. I know it's touched a lot of people. And I would think that you've encountered a lot of that sentiment as you've talked to people about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, people uh, have been very kind and offering like a lot of like the, the sentiment is is concern, I guess, <laughs> you know, they, uh, <laughs> sure. which is, which is, uh, maybe a good sign that, you know, we captured something real because <laughs> people are very, yeah. people, uh, people have a little, um, concern for me out there on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure June 1st, maybe a few check-in texts or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. My friends, it, it, those following me on my little private IG, <laughs> check that. But are you okay though? <laughs> <Very> <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to zoom back a little bit and ask, can you talk a little bit about what comedy means to you in the context of coming out publicly in this way? I mean, one of the reasons the special radiates such an, a level of honesty um, is how authentic it all feels to you in the moment for us watching. Yeah, um, 
I, I was going to do something else, um, probably something more, not to like reveal unfinished work because I really hate when people do that, but like, but like uh, more in line with like my dinner with Andre or like a swim into Cambodia uh, kind of thing that um, yeah. was more monologue um, and uh, involved other people. And, um, and I, I kind of hit a wall of frustration. I like, had a lot to say and needed something more immediate. And I hadn't gone up in a little while consistently. It had been years. And I was like, kind of sad about something, uh, at, uh, Bo and Lorraine's house. And, I was, <laughs> and then I, I called, uh, Ari, uh, just to talk something out. And it started kind of sounding like stand up, uh, how I was saying it, 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 it it, and I was like, oh, yeah, here's this art form that I hadn't, like, touched in, <laughs> in like, four or five years. Like, really, uh, maybe I could do that. That's pretty immediate. Like, like I, instead of waiting for, like, cinematographer availability, I could go to the comedy store tonight, <laughs> you know. And and so then I did. And I, um, you know, I said things because I, ta- I hadn't talked about being gay on stage before. And so saying it, it's like, you know, I, I kind of learned how to say it, learned how to make it into an act. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that is a funny thing to say, but I, I was learning how to get rid of some of the old habits of some of the things that I used to do on stage that were like some parts showmanship and some parts just like, really overly confident like like because stand up such a, a masculine sport yeah and uh in order to stand out especially like you're a comic if you, you started um anytime in recent history uh you've come up in a culture that has like 10 other comedians on the lineup for every show and you're trying to stand out and there's exhaustion and and inebriation <laughs> from the audience. <laughs> right. And, and, and so there are these tools that you develop in order to get attention, you know, and, and they were kind of similar to the tools that I developed to like represent myself as a man. It's was funny, you know, a, a lot of this align the personal and the craft kind of aligned in that way. Um, and I went up and yeah, I, I, it wasn't it wasn't really good but there was something there was like a spark um and and so then that was in early december and then just a few sets later just it was like yeah of course we're doing this and we'll probably film soon um it kind of went from zero to a hundred in that way Hmm. i'm curious about um if you could go a little bit into the weeds for me on, on what that fine tuning process looked like. Um, you know, I'm thinking of everything from the audience participation in the special to the really long silences, which, uh, almost kind of trap you as a viewer into what you're experiencing. Um, what are some specific things, um, from set to set that, that led to the finished product or there are, were there moments of, uh, that were really clarifying for you? Oh yeah. All of it. I mean, it's a very structured set. Like, it, you know, it took a lot of structure to get to the illusion of freedom that we created in the final piece, um, going trial and error. You know, comedians are in some ways magicians. Uh, 
sometimes we actually are, <laughs> but, but like, <laughs> yes, but, um, uh, you kind of learn what things lead to what in a room, like what kind of causes an audience to lean in. And, you know, the, the audiences have been asking questions, um, for this show, like while I was on the road in, um, San Francisco or Atlanta or, or Austin. Um, I, I didn't do many, uh, dates, but just the, the, the towns that I hit and the shows that I did, like started creating a tone. Um, uh, and, and just thought it was interesting to have the, the audiences like kind of fill in the blanks because, because it's a living, breathing thing that I'm going through in real time. Right. And it's because it's, it was unresolved. Um, you know, the audience participation kind of, um, it, like uh, learn even on the road, like, oh, this kind of resolves the kind of like emotional void that the audience felt like just allowing them to, to contribute in that way, uh, to the show, like, kind of, like resolve, like, because the act didn't have, I mean, it's a gap between me and my mother, so it didn't have, you know, there is no, and then that it's like, a, and, and here now. You know what I mean? Like, 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 like how most shows end and here, you know, and there's a show, this one ended in a weirder place. So yeah, just kind of learning how to structure, like how to, how to structure the show, uh, in a way that felt complete, um, was, uh, done on the road and done in writing and a lot of conversations with Bo. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, um, Working with Bo, I know you'd worked with him before, um, but what was your dynamic like and what were those conversations like in, in shaping it? Um, really, really uh, intense and really brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> but, but in a way that we, like, I mean, he's my best friend and, um, you know, this is all, as far as the personal goes, these were, you know, he knows every, I, I probably don't have an unexpressed emotion <laughs> that, that I, that I, that I give him. Well, that's not true. I, you know, the part of what's fun about the making Rothaniel was having him behind the camera and revealing things to him that I was afraid to say in the room like some things that even with him like him being so there for me i I, you know that you never really tell everybody everything but then somehow oddly cameras incentivize me to tell the truth that's a dangerous thing that i talk out in uh in therapy a lot but (laughs) (laughs) but 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 you know um those sessions are you know kind of blended with life um Mm -hmm. but you know, Bo's a really, really, really hard worker. Um, and instilled in me, like even more value in the work of, of the craft. I mean, like just an incredibly hard worker an incredibly thoughtful worker. And I don't know, it's just kind of a, a, I don't know how to describe. It. I mean, they're, they're just every day. I was like living with them for a while. So right. like, they're just like nonstop every day. I'll just go do stand up. I'll go on the road. I'll fly out. He'd fly out with me. Just, yeah, I'll just work. It was like intensive for like three months, I guess, December, January, February. Um, so from early December till right around Valentine's Day. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. It, it was interesting 
this spring, um, watching your special. And then shortly after that, I saw Netflix's big um, LGBTQ plus comedy showcase. Um, it, it made me wonder about your general awareness of an engagement with, with queer comedy and whether that evolved as you started coming out. I can put it another way too, which is you mentioned comedy being a really masculine uh, stand-up, you know, conventions being really masculine. Um, and I, I know you taught, you told the story about um, telling a gay joke uh, at a club one time and, and a gay comic afterwards sort of criticizing it uh, in front of the audience. Um, oh yeah. 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 No, I remember that. Um, it was at, um, the people's improv theater open mic. I was still an open micer and, and I used to come to New York because I would um, like avoid pilot season by coming to New York. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was like, Oh, I'll just go to New York after like Christmas or whatever. And just like stay there till March, like through like writing and casting and shit and then come back on the safe. And uh, I, I, yeah, I remember, I remember that moment. Um, because there was obviously so much that I couldn't say to him. And he, you know, he came, I remember he had a leather jacket and some leather boots. He looked good, so he was cute. Not to mm-hmm. demean the thing. Everything's not aesthetic-based, Gerard. I have to remind myself that. Um, they can coexist, though. <laughs> they can coexist, but he was hot. Anyway, you know, he, he talked to me after the set. Because I, I did a bit that was just, like, about, like, being gay but don't be so gay about it, you know, like, just like about the, about, uh, and, and, and obviously that's from self-hate, right? Because I'm telling myself that, like, I'm saying this out loud because I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, it was getting louder and louder and unignorable at that point in my life, (laughs) you know, and I'm like saying to me, you know, and then he, he came up to me after the show in the lobby, I remember. And, um, so we are feeling because it's like, I mean, I can still see him. And I'm like, I, I can't say to him, oh, man, I'm gay. Hug me. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, hey, do you not see like, do you not have a pain in that? <laughs> you know, and he was explaining yeah. and it was like I was listening and feeling what he was saying, but it was kind of being washed out by my own fear. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a crazy moment. Yeah. And I mean having been to many comedy shows in, in my life, it's I've heard many gay jokes over time, over time. So I guess that's what I was getting at is it's something that is a part of comedy in a lot of ways too, is navigating that. Oh, terrain. it's such a pure, like comedians love it. I mean, you know, um, it, you know, especially they love to imitate and talk about since the, the seventies, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's exciting. It's, it's alluring. Hey, I get it. Yeah. it's all i want to talk about too so i get it (laughs) uh i would say there's a certain frankness that's a real hallmark of a lot of your work i think especially of your previous uh, hbo specials uh the carmichael show which i loved and, and which is all about thorny topics i think of that show and it almost feels like you know you talk about secrets in the special so much and wanting to confront them that you were almost taking your the advice that you've you know, put forward in your work a little bit with this special. Yeah. Yeah. And it always, uh, don't you hate cliches? It makes me so angry. That it's just sometimes like, they fit. <laughs> sometimes it's like, Oh, my fourth grade teacher was right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, taking my own advice. The thing that I heard Mike Tyson say the other day, you are what you hate, <laughs> you know, like, you yeah. know, like I, it, it, yeah, yeah, of course. 
Yeah, thorny topics. I like I like thorny topics. Uh, you do well because it, it's exciting. It's alive. You know, um, I I was able to talk about things that I was afraid of, but I wasn't able to say my biggest fear. You know, so like like my my stand up. I I looked for danger everywhere I could. You know, and I was just like spelunking <laughs> with a flashlight, just like, you know, marriage and race and, you know, uh, politics. I can't wait to be a Republican, just finding these little pockets of perspective and feelings and things that often were true. Always, like, were true. I wasn't just like saying things because I, I do think audiences connect with truth. So I was like seeking yeah. it and trying to. I was trying to do it, but ultimately hiding. And then, you know, this work was Rothaniel. The the synopsis really should be man who's afraid of heights jumps out of an airplane on HBO. Hmm. Wow. Like, like yeah. I really like rewrite rewrite the synopsis of the special to just <laughs> to be that because because it was me, but um. But it was about my biggest fear, you know. It, it was it was the thing I thought I would never say, um, uh, and I ran from it. And that was obviously the thing I needed to talk about the most. And that's like, you know, I was I, I get in these conversations with friends and you know other comics all the time. Like, well, what's the responsibility? Like, what are we supposed to be talking about? Like, what what are you doing? Because I, I I do kind of resent the philosopher association a, a, a little bit because I, I, I do think that there is philosophy that can be derived from a stand-up comedian's mind and is George Carlin brilliant and, you know, say things that are pertinent to today? Yes, of course. But, like, there are also philosophers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're like people who like exa- who actually like study and like <laughs> like 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 and and I think those people should be listened to like first. And I do think that like stand up the probably one of the greatest things you can offer is like a long form interior story in an hour. You know, or, or um, and uh, and I kind of I think like switched my like my target <laughs> like I, I i don't i no longer feel responsible i don't i know I, I never really felt responsible to speak for groups of people or things like that but like i i truly only feel responsible for myself now um but to, to that point you're making though i mean i think of the carmichael show um which was staged as the series of tough family conversations that show is all about family secrets and 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 the and family disagreements um which is of course a hallmark of the special it almost feels like thinking back on it not that there was wish fulfillment there but some practice of what was internally going on with you yeah yeah in some ways and i i I think in some ways the the audience has always been my mother and i've been trying to get them to understand me and listen to me and i've been playing with their limits and seeing how far I could get them to go. And that's what's fun to me. Because the Carmichael show, when I reflect on it, and actually during the time of making it, I always looked at it as an experiment. I always like refer to it as an experiment. It, it, but, but it was because the Carmichael show to me was all the things that you weren't supposed to say and do on television. And it's like the packaging is multi-cams, live studio audience show. 
but it's like, <laughs> but it's like I, the thing that excites me when I when I think about my show was uh, the things that I, I, writers told me to my face. Like it, it was war. Like writers' rooms are war. Like I hate writers' rooms. Like I love individually so many of the writers that worked on the show, like truly. But as a like as a writers' room, I hate us together. I don't like it. I don't <laughs> think anything good has ever come from that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like I, I don't think that a, a group of people can craft anything <laughs> specific or like, you know, like I just don't, I just don't believe that. And, that, and, and so like, so I would have like, even internally, it, it like just, it was things writers told me to my face. You couldn't, like people use terms like couldn't, you couldn't do this on television like you couldn't you know like you can't say this well this doesn't work the amount of times Carmichael show is just episodes of things that I was told doesn't work and couldn't be right and so like I felt like I was doing the impossible every week like I mean I like I mean these are like little things and these are probably the things like you know the most poppy exciting things but like not just saying like nigga six times in an episode and getting banned in markets talking about shootings honestly like honestly like be like put in a character and like a first person you know it with guns and my uh grandmother deciding to end her own life and taking the pill and dying on camera and, and like and like i like did a p a, the more you know i love the, the more you know psa <laughs> like i'm like smoking weed on the balcony like all, things like little things like that you know not just like little tricks of like oh i can get away but rooted around episodes and discussion and perspective that people told me was unlikable or like 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 and it just it just reminds me of obviously i'm carrying the most unlikable secret to my mother you know what i mean yeah. like and like i'm saying everything else but that i i've described the show as even like trying to get my mom to stop washing dishes like when, uh, when me and ari would write it and i would just kind of pace around i would do voices like for the episodes and i especially love like cold opens because like like, like, cause I just like do voices of everybody's reaction and whatever I did. Like, well, I did my real dad's voice, but I did Loretta Divine for my mom. Right. And what, what I always try and do is get my mom to stop washing dishes. Like in my, in my head, the show was on in the background and she's in the other room, like, you know, busy. My mom's like a busy body doing mom stuff. And I'm trying to say something. That, that really gets her attention to get her. I, I can always see the, the audience response that I was always trying to get was a woman like with like a, a drying towel and like a pan and like <laughs> peeking her head in a room going, what did they just say? You know, like I was that, like, that's yeah. always what I was fighting for. So that's why like the cold opens are like, me coming in and being like, I have tickets to see Bill Cosby or like, like just yeah. see, I'm just like, Hey, Hey, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like trying to cut through noise and like just this desperate attempt to get it. But anyway, like that, I, I think that's, that was at the core of a lot of my earlier work, you know, trying to say the truth without saying it. Um, and then I, I found that to be impossible. So, <laughs> so now I'm trying and here to, be, we are. well, now I'm just trying to be honest all the time and boy, is it exhausting. Um, well, well, on a, on a lighter note, before we wrap, um, you have a flourishing film career as well, but I, I have to ask a very specific question because, uh, as an awards podcast, we are familiar with Yorgos Lanthimos, an Oscar nominated filmmaker. You just starred in his movie. God, I'm so <laughs> excited to see 
this movie I haven't seen. I'm so excited. Uh, but what can you tell us about the experience of being in it? <laughs> because his movies have a very specific uh, voice, I, I was say. so down. I'm so down. I'm, I'm so... I like, look, I, I learned that I have to kind of just work on my own shit all the time and, and that I shouldn't like I, like I just couldn't do a friend had a, a movie. I couldn't do it because I would like try and pull a thread and like undo too many things. And I don't think actors should be producers. If there's one important thing that I, I can say in, in this context, actors got to stop producing their own shit. You can always tell you'll always protect your own self-interest in a way that will cause your work to be bullshit. Like if that could be my message, like, I don't know if that fits on a t-shirt, but, but it will all, I, and I won't, I'll save examples, but people who like award season know who I'm talking about. And the actors who may hear this should know that like, they should stop. You shouldn't, you should hopefully be in the capable hands of a director who you can like completely relinquish yourself to, <laughs> the experience right like I, I it was beautiful because i questioned nothing i did what they i did what he said <laughs> you know i was excited to do what he said you know excited to try and hopefully rise to the you know occasion because it, it, he is very very specific like like and and you i love that i i like that's all i want if i'm gonna do something that's not totally mine it's like either direct it or don't <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. i mean like and like there's no and like i was just an actor and i how listen i'm just excited to watch because i watch every yorgos movie so i'm excited to watch right. it <laughs> yeah that's great yeah surrendering to the vision i love that yeah that's all you should do I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So now, David, uh, we're going to hear my conversation with Taika Waititi, who I had asked to talk to when I had just kind of plowed through all 10 episodes of Our Flag Means Death. And it kind of took a while to get him on the line. He is currently on his press tour for both Thor, Love and Thunder, and Lightyear, um, which really in some ways captures the range of what, the, what this guy is up to these days. Um, but I was really fascinated by him on Our Flag Means Death in particular. He's an executive producer on the show, but he's also an actor in it. He's doing kind of a a more substantial acting role than I think we've seen from him in a long time. You know, he's shown up in his own movies. He's got this small role in Free Guy. Um, but he's playing Blackbeard and this version of this real, like, terrifying, probably horrible pirate as kind of a, a sensitive guy who doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore. And as the show goes on, you kind of learn he maybe isn't as, as violent or as mean as everyone thinks. And he also falls in love with another pirate, uh, Steve Bonnet played by Reese Darby, who he's been friends with for a long time as fellow New Zealand comedians. Uh, so I really just wanted to ask him about, like, when you are a powerful producer who can get a lot of things made, how do you decide to spend time and how is one of those things, like spending four hours in hair and makeup, putting on a, a wig to play Blackbeard? Um, and I thought he had some fascinating answers about it. Um, I'm just excited that we're having another Kiwi on the podcast and let's keep That's it going. true. Yeah. David Stealth New Zealander. This is part of your uh, agenda to, to get New Zealand represented on the Little Gold Men. Yeah. Uh, so let's hear that conversation with Taika Waititi. 
so where are you right now? I'm in New York. Okay. Uh, is, are you doing like Final Thor stuff? Like what? what is your schedule right now? I'm starting a press tour for Thor and, uh, and Buzz Lightyear. How is, what is your life like in like the month before a giant movie release like this? Is it just total insanity? It's, yeah, it's basically just traveling around and talking about the film as if I still like it and uh, <laughs> just trying to, trying to get people excited by this thing that I've watched 300 times and never want to see ever again. It's got to be easier for Lightyear then. Like you haven't seen it 100 times. You can get out that genuine enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it once. Uh, <laughs> and I really love that one. Um, yeah, it's good. It's like I've, I've got, I'll be between New York and London and then uh, back to LA and then I go to Australia and then back to London. I mean, it's sort of all over for June and July. Well, so I saw that the second season of Our Flag Mean Death is going to be in, in New Zealand, right? Does that make it easier for you at least? It's fantastic. It's like the best news ever because I can be near my kids who live there. Yeah. And, uh, and also near my family. And, uh, and I also miss New Zealand. It was like through the pandemic, I couldn't get back in the country for a year. Oh my so, God. Uh, I mean, I was working on other stuff as well, but it's just there was like a to get into New Zealand was like a thirty-five thousand person wait list. Yeah, well, because New Zealand uh, had like no COVID, so they didn't want anything to do. I mean, you actually live there; the rest of us don't stand a chance. Well, it was like you know, one person would get it, and it would be like the national news. Yeah, and you're sitting here, you're in the U.S. watching it, being like Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why can't anyone else get it together? <laughs> yeah, it really was like a disaster movie the whole time. Um, I mean, that season two renewal for our five means that took so long. Like, what what was the behind the scenes of that? Yeah, because we I know that David had been talking in his story room about like, what was going to happen in the next season, should there, there be one. And I thought we'd know sooner. Um, but I think, I suspect HBO's gone through some sort of change or something, though they've just been brought or something. I don't know what the hell's going on yeah. with anyone. But uh, that was only explained to me like about two weeks okay. ago. I was like, why are these people <laughs> screwing around? And I was like, oh, okay, now I get it because everyone's uh, deciding what to do with the company. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the you know, it's one of the most fun things I've worked on in a long time. And also just just acting in it was really challenging and rewarding and to be able to do that again is going to be cool. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, read some interviews you guys have all done together, but I feel like I don't have a firm grasp on, like, how David Jenkins came across your transom, like, how how you either saw the pilot or the script for it or anything like that and got involved with the show. Where where did it start? We share a manager. Ah, that's always what so it you is. You can fill it? it all in from there. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, wow, boy, boy, have I got the guy for you. <laughs> uh, so he introduced us, and, uh, and David had already uh, – I think there was a podcast or something or the, uh, around it, and he was like already formulating the plan for the show. So we talked about what the show could look like, what what it could be, and 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 then he started writing the pilot based on these conversations that we had. Yeah, uh, yeah, but it was all his idea. Do you have a process for how you decide to work with someone? Because you you know you executive produce a lot of things, you get involved in a lot of other people's work. Do you have a system for figuring out who you want to work with or what you want to get involved in to that extent? Yeah, for me, it's a pretty easy process. It's just I talk to them and ascertain whether or not I could bear to talk to them for another two years. Yeah, and, or longer. Or longer, yeah. And if I get on with them and, I th- and they're not an asshole, then I th- usually it, I, I decide to do it. And I was used to the the, uh, the content, the, the project has to make sense. 
Yeah, like is it a sense of humor matching up thing? Is it a like? It's a lot of that is yeah. a lot of it's the the humor thing. Yeah, because if uh, I mean that's like I talked to my therapist about this about relationships. It's like sometimes you like you know in the past I'd be like, yeah, well I don't want I don't mean to be shallow, but well they just don't really get my jokes, and I was, mm. you know I, 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 weirdly I just find that a problem. And she was like, no, no, that's probably the number one and most important thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, you've got to get each other. You've got to understand each other and, like, you know, and, and want to be around each other's humour and, like, enjoy that part of each other because that's what connects you. And so, you know, with any relationship that you go into with with work, it's all about humour for me. It's all about being able to share a joke and, and, and getting the joke. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, with David, he's very funny and is right. And I got that from the writing. It was just... Just right there on the page. He's a brilliant uh, comedy writer. Yeah. And then when you kind of send him off to do his thing, like you're involved in it and obviously you come back in, on the set, but you're kind of trusting him to hire the writers and get the, and like keep that tone in place as he makes the show that you guys came up with together, right? Yeah. Yeah. And no, that, that particular, on that particular show, uh, I was shooting Thor in Australia. And so I didn't really have time to be, doing all the prep with David as much as I would have liked to. But it actually was, it worked out great because it was his show and he knew kind of like he could picture everything he wanted. He basically did all of that prep work and, you know, he'd, say, he'd just check in and say, I, I feel like it should be this. And I was like, you just run with it, man. It was great. And I kind of relinquished any kind of control. And, and for me, it was just a very relaxing style of working where I was like oh I don't have to control everything and micromanage every little thing if you're working with someone you trust it's like an extension of your brain and they just take care of that stuff and it was uh it's like maybe too easy yeah well then you step in and direct the pilot and people talk about how the pilot director you know Martin Scorsese directs the pilot of Boardwalk Empire and like sets the tone for the rest of the series did that did you feel like that was what you were able to do with that first episode yeah, and that's always the intention. It's like, you know, wanting to make something that everyone else will, uh, you know, they'll be able to pick up and carry that sensibility through. But also you want other directors to come in and do their own thing, um, you know, which I felt like all the different directors we had on the, sh- on the show were able to do. Yeah. I mean, the time commitment of EPing a show and directing an episode versus showing up and getting in full costume four or five hours a day is huge. And when you're making another movie at the same time, do you have people around you who are like, you can't do this, like you do not have time to do this? And do you yeah. just <laughs> tell them to shut up and do I'm it anyway? Surra- yeah, I'm surrounded by a lot of those people <laughs> yeah. who are now just accepted that I'm just still going to do it. Like, I think I was doing Thor. I was also editing my soccer movie, which everyone forgot about, including myself. Uh, and I was like... Oh, that's right. I did. That's right. I had made. I was making a soccer movie, mm-hmm. which I took a year when I didn't even watch that film, and it was just set on ice. Well, because it shot a couple of years ago, right? It shot just before the pandemic, uh-huh. like in like in November twenty nineteen, and then I mean, it's been over two years. Yeah, it's, it's never happened to me. I mean, it's crazy, but it's, yeah, it's finished and it's good. Like we've been testing it, and the people love the film. So, so you can have two movies out in one year. Is that where this is headed? Maybe, that's. Yeah. I mean, you like you said you like to keep busy. Yeah, but I was doing those two things. I was doing the pirate show. I was also like I've been writing other stuff for other people, and just really slutting myself around, you know, <laughs> like around town, like making hay. Because you know, you never know. You never know when it's all going to go away or when the window is going to close. So you just go like for me. I'm like I got to hustle. 
and get as much done as possible. Because Has it always felt like that for you? Or is it now when you have the ability to like green light other people's stuff and when you can make this so much stuff happen? Uh, I think if you talk to most people in the industry, it always feels like that. Mm-hmm. It's rife with imposter syndrome that we just like, I don't deserve it. It's all going to go away. And there's never enough. Yeah. And nothing nothing changes that over the course of a Nothing. Career. I know a lot of people have been doing this 30 years and they're still <laughs> like, I'm so scared the window's going to close. I'm like, dude, you've been a star for 30 years. <laughs> I think you're fine. And they're like, you know, you never know. You know, I'm just going to be like, you know, just like this idea of becoming irrelevant or like just forgotten. And, yeah. You know, and, and, and that there's always, you know, younger, fresher, more hungry people coming up who uh, you know have got better and usually do have better ideas because they're like they're, you know, sometimes I like when I'm writing and stuff like I'm thankful that I've still got good ideas and I've still got that hunger and I still feel young yeah you look at me, I, dress, I dress like a mate but like uh, but now and then I do think I'm like wow I used to love writing so much when I wasn't being paid and whether I had no contracts and no offers and no deadlines or anything and I'd like wake up and I'd be like I'm this world I'm going to create and it was just such a joy to open my laptop and now I just associate typing with just a hundred people wanting something yeah now with deadlines me and deadlines and me not having the time to like just sit and stare at the ceiling and just daydream for five hours and there you go oh that's a good idea now it's like just get it done I mean, as someone who I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm always thinking like, what can I do with my eight hours in the day between dropping off my kids and picking up my kids? So like, how how you spend every minute of your day matters so much, especially when you've got as many projects as you have. So when you tell someone I'm going to go spend four hours putting a wig on, like, what makes that worth that many hours in your day or in your schedule? What makes it worth it? Well, with the wig stuff and the big uncomfortable beard uh, and the scratchy mustache and all this. Really uncomfortable tattoos. I'm making it sound like acting is a real hard job. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to get to that too. It's very uncomfortable having to do all of that. And, and uh, you know, Blackbeard was supposed to be angry and pissed at everything, and I was for a lot of that. Like, I was like, just by physical discomfort, just angry because I couldn't really eat without getting hit. And it's also the wigs as someone else's hair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting that in your mouth while you're eating. I mean, it's just like. When you actually analyze it too much, it's pretty disgusting. You're wearing other people all over your head. <laughs> and uh, so, like, and I'm sure the beard is someone else's beard. Some old man's, some old man's beard. Yeah, or many, multiple old man's beards. Hey, but I was going to come back to what you're talking about, the uh, fitting things in in the day. And I discovered something through jet lag, which was that I was I started waking up at like 2 a.m., and realizing, so I used to be a painter before I was doing all of this stuff, like back when I was in my 20s. And that's like the time I would work the most would be like between sort of midnight and 4 a.m., you know, when like no one else could bother me. And so for about two weeks after I got back from my trip to New Zealand, just um, a month ago, oh, piss off. Were you yelling at a phone? Um, it's probably a fan. Probably got my room number. Probably, it's probably a tiger path. <laughs> <laughs> you 
Did you coin that? That's the fan club. That's the, yeah, that's the fan club I made up. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've been a Taika Pass for too long, you join Taika Holics Anonymous. <laughs> it sounds so dangerous. <laughs> but I was thinking, yeah, so from 2 a.m. to like 4 or 5 a.m., there's no get no distractions, no one's trying to email you or text you or anything like that. So if you can manage to get that time to yourself, it's like been the most productive few hours I've um, had anywhere in the day. And someone was describing it as before 8 a.m., you're proactive. Mm-hmm. So you are the you have the power to put things out. I'm saying like somebody's like a changing lives here. No, it's like Tony Robbins speaker here. <laughs> yeah, but it's like you're putting things out into the world and – from 8 a.m. onwards, all you're doing is just fielding shit that's coming from out there. Yeah. And it's just like you're deflecting, answering emails. Answering, you're just reacting for the whole rest of the day, which is why no one gets anything done. Yeah. Well, that's what being a director is, right? Is you're standing on a set and everyone's like, what's that's this? It. What should this be? What should that be? I mean, so you've, you've gotten good at it over the years, I assume. Yeah. And, you're, and you really like learn to like deflect and like just make decisions no matter, even if you think they might be wrong. Yeah. You know, because that's half of directing is just like making a decision and seeming confident with it. And then uh, everyone goes, well, he knows what he's doing. Um, And then you like go off and spend, yeah, you're just trying to find little pockets of time where you can reflect and hopefully have those creative moments where you're like, okay, can I just breathe and think about what the scene is? And then someone else is like, should the table be round or square? Mm -hmm. I don't care. Just leave me alone. I need to think. Um, so what time yeah, do you go to bed um, to be able to wake up at 2 a.m. and work? Uh, like 8.30, 9. It's impressive. It takes um, some discipline. Yeah, well, it, for me, it takes a lot of discipline because I have I've been notorious for not going to bed at that hour. Well, I'm imagining in being in your 20s and painting from 12 to 4. That's not that's, that's not going to sleep. That's when you're sleeping from like 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. or something like that. And then that's exactly it's right. all over. Uh, I didn't even drink in my 20s. So it was like... A weird, like, non-drinking party animal who wasn't even partying. was just sitting there <laughs> painting pictures. <laughs> I think about it, like, this kind of, it was a bit of a loser. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and, but on the show, like, so, you know, that was actually, I found directing the pilot was fantastic. But then after that, just having a job where I only had to concentrate on acting was that was kind of like allowed me a little bit more creative time as well. I could just go in and I could be, for the first time in a long time, be creative with the words and with the character mm-hmm. and actually concentrate on it. Because usually when I'm in my own stuff, I always leave it to the last minute and I always forget my lines and I get angry with myself because I spent so long writing the lines and then I don't even have the decency to remember those lines that I wrote. And, uh, and then the performance suffers, and then the director part of me gets pissed off with me, and <laughs> like wasting everyone's over time. And, over. and so, so yeah, so um, just to just be able to focus on acting by itself without thinking about any of the other stuff was uh, it's awesome. I just yeah, I really loved it. It's kind of rekindled my love for acting because part of me becoming a director and a writer was there were no acting roles. In New Zealand, of you know, yeah, there was nothing interesting, so I had to kind of try and do it for myself. So you would have been an actor only, you think, if someone had been making movies that were interesting enough? Yeah, then? I, I think it would have been just maybe a lot later before I started directing. But boy, am I glad I didn't. Boy, am I glad I didn't <laughs> do do that and stick with just acting. 
because do you think you're a better director than actor? I just my life's so much better like mm, this. Yeah, you know, I love making films. I love being able to be more in control of the story and stuff like that. I mean, you were talking about your role in Free Guy. I think you said something like you finished Jojo Rabbit and you wanted to do something easy, which was acting. But I like watching Our Flag Means Death or like like the bathtub scene, the doggy heaven scene. Like that doesn't feel easy when I'm watching it. And it feels like it can't be easy in the same way as what you're talking about with some of those smaller roles. Well, I, I was an actor for a long time. You know, you know, before, like since I was like, I don't know, the first thing I did when I was like 10. But, uh, so I've been doing it a long time, but I've only people have only really probably ever seen like, I mean, no one's seen anything in America, but like back home, it's, it's probably a lot of comedy stuff that mm -hmm. me and my friends were writing and stuff like that. But we we're also doing a lot of drama stuff as well. Uh, so that I found that just more fun to go back into doing drama because it's for someone like me, it's like it's just different, and I find it really fun. I enjoy that. I never, I don't, I don't want to do it every day, like, but you know, do the all that crying stuff because I just feel like it's, it sort of just bums you out. There's a lot but, of um, it in the end of that season. It gets, it gets dark fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that stuff is, you know, like I know I can do it, and it's just enjoyable to be able to flex that a little bit, as actors talk about, flex that muscle. Yeah, I mean, well, even if you hadn't done it in a while, it's something you knew was there. Well, also like. You know, I've uh, I've got a lot in my life to draw on, and it's like I think a lot of people think if you just do comedy, like you just gag it up all day long. <laughs> uh, you know, and we're the most depressed people on earth. Is that something? This is a really weird thing to ask. Like, you're obviously making films based on your own experience too. Do you draw on yourself directing in the same way you do acting, or is it a really different process? I think I do, and that's mainly just like I'll draw on stuff to give to other people probably. As examples, I'll say, well, hey, you know, this one time this uncle tried to molest me, you should use that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to I'm not trying drop to it and walk away. Make light of molestation. Sure, sure. But you know, like you will say things you'll be like I think that's sort of like like I'm glad I didn't I feel like I'm glad I didn't start filmmaking a lot earlier. I feel like, and also, you know, some people are like, oh man, it's too late to, to have a go at that. I'm like, well, I was 30 when I started making films. So I had 30 years of quite intense life experiences to draw on at that point. So I feel like, you know, it's just a long training. Like those 30 years is just, you know, and 30 years of watching movies and absorbing films. It's just a longer film school, and it's just a different film school, but it's still film school. Yeah. Um, okay, back to Our Flag Means Death, our flag means death for a second. Obviously, the yeah. like fan attention to it has been such an engine of driving it and driving oh the God. second season. And so you're on social media, not as much, though, as I think like David Jenkins or other people. Like You've engaged in it, but I maybe have kept some distance for your own sanity. I'm curious about what, how much of that you can engage with, maybe with the New Zealand thing of not wanting to take a compliment. Uh, well, part of it, social media has lost all sense of charm or interest or entertainment for me. I barely even look at it anymore. Interesting. The only thing I look at now is like TikTok. I don't even know why I do that. I think it's just because it's got noise. <laughs> it's because you're, uh, you're young, obviously. Because look at me, I'm young. <laughs> but also the, uh, the, like Twitter has just become, 
I don't know, is there something wrong with that? Thing? I, like, I, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, and also, like, I don't really have anything really to say on Instagram. I'll like post something if like I find it interesting. I'm just used to like I just like reposting other people's things now. Yeah. But uh, but with our flag, the thing that's made me the most happy is the fan art. Yeah. Oh my god. And uh, you know, it's like. Also, when it can be, you know, you're self-promoting, again, maybe it's a New Zealand thing, the more, like, it just becomes cringy the more you go on about something or sure. the more you kind of try it. For us, it feels like showing off, and it's, which is a shame because we should be promoting ourselves. <laughs> we should be promoting this this, this work. Uh, but the but the, the some of this art coming in, man, is just incredible, like, especially, like, the Steed Blackbeard uh, relationship stuff, which, you know, it gets raunchy. It sure does. Out. And it's you, like, you I follow that hashtag. it all on my phone. I collected it all on my phone now and it's like, <laughs> oh, what's the hashtag? Oh, it's, it's like hashtag OFMD, I think. Anytime oh, I've right. like looked at someone tweeting it's about something it. something another one was like Ed and Bonnet. Like yeah. yeah. Teach, yeah, Bonnet and Teach or something. <laughs> so you allow yourself to look at the fan art as as the social yeah. media something. There's an amazing feel... artists out there. It's so cool to see. Like, oh, I know. Incredible. I mean, like you, you've made Marvel movies. Like you understand fandom. Like, does this one feel different? Well, this one is. I'm really proud of this show and proud of what we did because it's really reached. Like the fandom is very different, but the fandom. But this, not to say that Marvel films don't touch people, change people's lives, sure. you know, in in a certain way. But this really like spoke to a, a whole lot of people, especially in the um, in the LGBT. Q plus uh, community, and and that was just something where I never really like. I, I, there was an inkling in the back of my mind that you know that I was happy that it was like you know, that it was acknowledging this um, aspect, but I didn't know that it would travel so deeply into those communities. Yeah, and reach so many people and just kind of and speak to them and, and 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 speak to them in a way where you know a lot of people are like. I've never felt like we've been seen or heard, um, you know, in, you know, in this way ever before, and uh, and that was that was amazing as well. And also just to like not, you know, I, I think in the show we um, specifically tried to avoid characters really like pinpointing, uh, you know someone being gay or like saying yeah, like, or, like or, like, or, like, or commenting on it or labeling yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, it was really cool that like, that didn't matter really who the characters were, if they were villainous or they were good guys, everyone just accepted it. And it was yeah. like a kind of like an interesting world of pirates and vagabonds and people without any rules. Mm-hmm. And of course it makes perfect sense that they had no rules around sex. And they were just like, you do you. Really? Yeah. They're no, we don't abide by any of the rules of society. So whatever goes is cool with us. Um, and let's just get sailing. Yeah. I mean, going into a second season now, like, do, does it make you feel more responsibility in terms of how much the representation has meant to people? Do you do you feel that burden in any way? Of, like, I think to it's right more exciting. Them? It's like I want to do more. I feel like it's yeah. something where I feel like, you know, like – we really like you know like we gave everyone a kiss, you know, which didn't we didn't like delay it for six seasons, you know, or like do this thing where everyone's just like will they, will they, won't they? Mm-hmm. We just went, yeah, it's happening, we're doing it, and 
unabashedly and unapologetically just leapt into that love story, and it's yeah, you know, it's a love story, and and I want to see that go further, and I want to see like what happens with, and I also have not been privy to any of this, sure, sure, uh, from David, so um, I can't even spoil anything, but yeah, I would personally would love to see those two meeting up, you know. Yeah, I was, I was, oh yeah, well, I mean that would be insane. It's like, oh, it's like seeing people at a you know seeing someone at a party after you've broken up. Yeah, and, like, and you had a fight, and you're like, oh hey, how are you? And uh, just seeing like seeing that conversation, or like when they broach the subject and say like you left me, and like want to see that honestly that scene, and just you know just really going deeper into the relationship territory. Yeah, I mean, I think we just all we can all see like straight guys in their forties who process the way that like gender and sexuality are changing or just like I can't do it like I can't handle this new reality and what I love about this show is all like you and Reese and David are all kind of saying like but what if we did like what if it was what if it didn't freak us out and does that feel conscious for you like as you get older and kind of watch younger generations change things to be like no I like I've got to stick with it I've got to like go where society's going I think so like you know there's I don't I, I you know, some people are like, oh, the world's too woke. You're not allowed to say anything anymore. You're not allowed to. I'm like, but what's really, what's the big change that's really hard for you? That you yeah. can't say something that you think is lame, you can't say it's gay. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's okay to not say that, isn't it? You There's so many, other word. so many There's good words. There's a lot of words. <laughs> great words. So it's like, so the, the challenges that people, you know, think are out there, you know, from like having to be more conscious or, or considerate of other people, I think, you know, they're not really there. It's not hard to overcome. So, yeah, for me, I like, I'm like, yeah, why not embrace it? And also, like, I think, you know, when, you know, people often, uh, I actually just have trouble remembering the order of the letters in LGBT. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, I'm like, it I'm like always. It's like because there's no vowels in there. And I'm like, <laughs> so, it's like so you can't, a, you can't make a word of it. Ever, yeah, but. Uh, but I've got no problem adding more letters or yeah. adding more things. I'm like, yeah, more the merrier. That's fine. But some people are like, well, what is it now? I'm like, you don't know who's who and like, what's this? I'm like, it's actually just easier just to accept it and go with it than yeah. to like fight against it because you, it's a losing battle. It's just a f- massive wave that is like, you know, been building and is finally allowed to, you know, been, you know, allowed to come and crash on this beach. And it's like, yeah, just let yourself just get engulfed and then just float away with it and just <laughs> swim with it because it's gonna. It's ultimately, it's all good. It's all for the betterment of everyone else, and it's yeah. So you had know, so well, love, man. <laughs> I mean, you had talked around Hunt for the Wilder People about like growing up in a culture that was maybe more invested in like classic masculinity, like being macho and making work that tries to kind of question that. And I feel like the show really lines up right with that being like, there's just not one way to be a man. And a pirate is such a classic archetype of there is one way to be a man and this show is there to tear it down. I will tell you, I grew up in a a pretty macho culture and a very macho country. Where it's like, you know, you play rugby and you you drink beer and it's like kind of life is just set out for you. And how boring. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's like people who say, like, well, I don't want any immigrants here and then complain that there's only one type of food to eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, you know, that you want to have an interesting life and you want to be able to, you want to expose yourself to art and to, you know, to various cultures and 
various uh, types of people. Uh, so for me growing up, I I was exposed to that like from an early age though through like on my mother's side especially. So it was like there were a lot of eccentric and interesting and weird artists and stuff in my life. Um, so it wasn't like a later in life big shock for me. It was always sure. there. But I think I've realized that there are so many ways of being a man and and to be just macho and to just want to be like just straight, just to be like so determined to be straight is so sad and like, <laughs> and also is it just feels so tiring. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be so tiring just to like have to hold on to something that no one cares about? Yeah. So, so tightly. And it's like, look, if you just let go and accept who they're like, then we don't have the conversation. We can talk about more important things. But the idea that we have to still talk about all of this is mad. Yeah. It's 2020. And like, there's way more it's 20, it's 2022, actually. Oh, 2022, sorry. Oh, <laughs> my God. Year. It's 2022. <laughs> is it 2022? It sure is. It's crazy. Oh, I know. my God. What it does also still feel like, years? I don't know, sitting around here, I guess, not being back in New Zealand. Maybe that's sorry, the last time I had this thought. It was 20, I, was like, <laughs> God, I was like sitting there alone. I was like, it's 2020. Surely we can just stop talking about this. Well, now it's 2022. Two still years going. later, we're still going on about still it. Still going. Yeah. So, you know, it's like. I would much rather have the discussions around, you know, more intense, more upsetting things that are happening to humanity than, like, who someone's in love with. So now let's close this jam-packed episode with a conversation with Ron Howard, uh, Best Director Oscar-winning Hollywood legend Ron Howard, who I kind of cannot believe is on our podcast. Um, (laughs) And for Emmy season, which is also funny, uh, because he directed a documentary called We Feed People about Chef Jose Andres, who is kind of a a famous, famous among, uh, you know, foodies, but has really done this heroic work uh, feeding people with his World Central Kitchen. He kind of goes to disaster areas and places that need help and sets up kitchens and feeds them. Um, It's such an incredible altruistic act that he's doing and you think of Ron Howard as someone who's made all of these films that feel very like genuine and appreciating people doing great things and it's such an ideal combination between the two of them and also Ron Howard's career is fascinating at this point he can kind of do whatever he wants uh, and he's getting out there making documentaries which I think is such a, a great thing for someone to do at this stage in their career yeah, absolutely. And I love that his uh, his Emmy track record is is interesting. His last, he's been producer on Genius for National mm-hmm. Geographic, which has gotten him a couple nominations. And before that, of course, Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look at Ron Howard's IMDb page and you get kind of overwhelmed just by the, the prospect of it um, because he is someone who makes a lot of stuff, uh, which is another thing I was really interested to talk to him about. So let's hear that conversation with Ron Howard. So let's talk about We Feed People. Um, I was saw, I think you uh, you and Chef Andres run uh, Stephen Colbert's show, and you talked about encountering him when you were making your Rebuilding Paradise documentary. And I wondered if he just had this, like, magnetic pull where you said, I have to make an entire movie about him. Was he just irresistible from that one encounter? No, no. I mean, I, I didn't think about it because I when I first met him, I wasn't that focused on documentaries. I, I was... Uh, probably just getting started on Beatles eight days a week. 
and and which was my second doc project. So I, you know, I wasn't really I wasn't really think looking for subjects. However, I, I kept bumping into Jose, and his stories are fantastic. He's just he's so charismatic. He's he's funny, and yet the you know the underlying message was the possibility of creating change and making an impact in unexpected ways just through commitment and application of your own personal set of experiences and and so you know i just found it inspiring we 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 were getting ready to premiere uh rebuilding paradise talked to courtney monroe and carolyn bernstein uh from from nat geo and they said we're, we'd love to make a film about Jose Andres. We've been trying to. He's he's both very busy, and 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 he's uncertain as to whether that's something that he wants to do. Yeah. And um, so from that point forward, I realized, okay, this is a subject I I would really like to deal with. I know him. I you know I'm in. They're interested. We, we all believe there's a there's a story here. And from there, <laughs> the. It, it became a little more focused and I, I started showing up places and, and starting to, to nag Jose just a little bit about it. <laughs> it didn't take, you know, a whole lot of arm twisting, but it took a little, a little yeah. arm twisting. Yeah, because he's so good in front of a camera, but it seems like part of this um, part of this pivot is him saying, you know, being a celebrity chef is not enough. I don't want to be the star. I don't want to show up in these places and take all the attention. So you have to kind of tell him to be the center of attention in this movie. But I think it may be a different way than a celebrity documentary might be. Yeah, well, it's, you know, look, the, what's interesting to me, and, and this all sort of began to reveal itself through interviews, but also, you know, looking back and understanding Jose's journey he he didn't want it to be a film about him, but I realized as kind of the that the al, the alpha volunteer in a movie that to me sort of first and foremost was about volunteerism and the and the possibility of what could be you know achieved through it. So he his big concern was that somehow cameras and especially a director. It's one thing to have cameras just sort of recording it, which the World Central Kitchen people do, and they do brilliantly. And it turns out we used a great deal. Oh, of, it's incredible. Uh, There's so much footage. footage. I mean, yeah. it, it, that that really changed my whole approach to the film. Fantastic. And like, several of them, uh, Nate Mook and and uh, uh, is and Sam, they're they were they're documentarians. They, <laughs> I mean, they now work you know with, with World Central Kitchen, but they. You know, they showed up to to understand and capture it on video, and they wound up putting down their cameras and getting involved. Hell, I had the same problem with our team. Our field team would go, and I'd say, "Would you? How would you get yesterday?" You know, I'd be texting in or calling them from my location, wherever I was, and and uh, they'd say, "Well, we we got this and that," and it didn't sound like much. And I said, "Well, what 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 happened?" With you know, and. It wasn't appropriate for you to shoot. They said, well, no, there was a lot going on and they needed help. Yeah. And I just, you know, so we, we didn't shoot much. We put the camera down and we we, we, we helped unload trucks. Yeah. And, I, and so I'd have to say, you know, it's great. I understand. Um, it, but it we only have so many shooting days. I mean, Nat Geo is actually, um, you know, paying for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to we have to deliver. 
Well, there's some great shots in the Bahamas, I think, where the camera's just on the the truck or the cart with the food boxes. And it's like, all right, there we go. The camera can follow the food and someone can have their their hands free to, to help unload. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the big thing is he's there to do that job. So yeah. he never, ever wanted his cameras, our cameras, anybody's cameras to suddenly ask him to do something again. Or could you could you hold up for a second and while we're, you get our cameras ready because we really want to get a shot of the, the food or, you know, being delivered. And, and so that was an understanding. Um, but, you know, our, our, our cameras did pick up on that rhythm. And, and the one thing I would have to do is occasionally say, Jose, please find some time to talk to. We don't want to slow you up, but when you can, talk to us. Yeah. Or I've given, I've given our producers, I've given them questions that I want to, I want to pursue. Let them put a microphone on you, Jose, please. And, <laughs> and he was, of course, cool with that. And um, he's also, hey, look, he's a, he's a great storyteller. But yes. Part of the fun is not just hearing him tell his stories, but hear him talk about things he's learned, movies he's liked, books he's, you know, read and, and, and wanted to share. And uh, so I, I kind of deputized him. If you think there's something that sh- we should be shooting that we're not, tell us, tell them. They'll do it. And they did. So based on the timeline, you're premiering Rebuilding Paradise in January 2020. So were you, was your team starting the, on the production like as COVID was starting? Is that when you guys began? Yes, we got our, we, we, we had our commitment from Nat Geo and, and more importantly from Ho- Jose and, and the team. And it was, it was uh, probably late 19 or early 20 and then COVID hit. Yeah. And, uh, and there, which was a big challenge, and it definitely, you know, changed a lot of things. It changed our accessibility, how many people could go, how, many, how we could get cleared to be there. But it also really changed the World Central Kitchen mission. You know, they're, they're, they're nimble. They do what they have to do based on, on what they observe, what, what's requested of them. And now it was less about moving fast and rescuing and it was more about long-term support and, and, and a lot of it. It, was, it became less important to me to be sort of granular about how the operation was working today and more interesting to make it a kind of an origin story and go all the way back, understand the origins uh, of his volunteerism, but also uh, un- understand you know, what happened in, in Haiti. And I, I realized that one of the first talks I ever saw him give, it was a conference where we were both uh, speakers participating. He was really talking about wandering into a situation with no organization, but with a will and a desire to help. And actually in a matter of, of hours and, 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 and uh, get, you know, getting involved in yeah. constructive ways. And it's sort of him and a couple of people showing up with uh, good intentions and a credit card and some experience behind them. Um, mostly about food, not so much about disasters. Yeah. And, and asking a lot of questions. And, you know, I, the first thing that he said that we, we never actually got this in the documentary, but I remember him saying it and got a big laugh that day, uh, w- was, uh, you know, that the first thing he would do is go to the bar in those days. <laughs> because he, that's where he could start asking questions in a relaxed way and find out what people needed and who, who was getting, you know, things done. I think at that point, Jose expected more to pitch in with NGOs that were already accomplishing what was needed 
and just required support. You know? And but instead, what what he began to see were were, were gaps in the operation. And we, we you know we we described this in the film. He they're they're talking about getting fuel to aid rescues. They're talking about medical care, but they're not, they're just not talking about food. Yeah, and water, and and he and he just felt like, well, I boy, I understand that. Yeah, I love that you said you got advice from Jonathan Demme when you first started making documentaries because empathy, I think, is such a huge part of his narrative films and his documentaries, and I really mm-hmm. feel that that through line in the work you're doing too. Like, what was what was the guidance he gave you that has pushed you through this documentary career? Well, well, you know, Brian Grazer actually ventured into the doc world a couple of times before I ever dared to. We, we we got in trouble for it because those were the days when Imagine was sort of under these, these these sort of strict sets of obligations to specific studios and networks and whatnot. And so when we would venture into something like that, you know, it was frowned upon a little bit. Because you're but, just like, why aren't you finishing this other thing you're supposed to be doing? I mean, to the point of cease and desist letters. But you <laughs> know, but we we uh, um, but Brian was interested and 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 put some time and energy you know, into a couple of projects that were, that he got a lot out of. And I, I could see he, that he was enjoying it. So he's had an appetite for it. I've been fearful at a certain point. He, I got always interested. Like I was a co-editor of the high school paper. So there was a part of me that felt like if I didn't, if I didn't actually advance um, into, into, you know, a lifelong career in the business as an adult, I, you know, I, journalism was one path that I was seriously um, considering. So I've always had that curiosity and that respect for um, that, you know, for journalism, but also documentary filmmaking. He came to me and he said, Jay-Z and this producer, Steve Stout, who he knew from working with the, on American Gangster uh, and, and some, some music pieces and things for American Gangster. He said, they're, they're doing a uh, music festival and they want to cover it and make a documentary, but more, they just want to record it all. And they, but they want a director. Um, they've just decided they want to do this. So it's, it's happening in a week. Do you want to do it? I think they need a quick answer. And that day I happened to have a board meeting at uh, Jacob Burns Film Center, uh, which is this film society and, 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 and media literacy organization that I'm on the board of and that Jonathan Demme was one of the founders of. And I, after the after this board meeting, I took Jonathan aside and I said, you know, I've I've always admired what you do. Spike Lee does it. Martin Scorsese, you know, you guys do you do both and great in both mediums. And um, I, I've always been a, a, a little um, tentative about getting involved. I have this opportunity. What do you think? And he said, just do it, man. Just jump in and do it. He said, you'll love it. He did predict. He said, "You're going to be able to use more of what you know and your sensibility than you than you realize you'll be able to." And he said, "But but here's what's different. You need to really organize your thinking and believe you know what story you're looking for, just so you have a a point of view and a start. You know, but you have to be ready for the 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 sort of the the whole thing to flip. I mean, you have to be ready for the 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 premise to just change through discovery." or the direction of the structure, but, but dive in, dive in. And I did, and I had a great time. And even though it was just a sort of a behind the scenes look and you know, it, it was psychologically interesting. I was exploring music I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to before, 
the people who make that music, the people who are affected by that music. And, you know, and I, and I, we struggled with it, trying to sort of find its footing in, in the editing, went back and interviewed Jay-Z and a couple of other people a second time. That was enlightening to see how much more you could get, you know, in that second interview, which do- yeah. documentary veterans know about that. I didn't. Journalism didn't too. <laughs> the secondary interview usually works a lot better. That second interview is key. But um, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And, and uh, that led Nigel Sinclair, who had been an executive producer on the movie Rush, mm-hmm. uh, but had produced a lot of music documentaries, to come and talk to me about the possibility of doing um, the Beatles documentary. So we ran a piece uh, a week or two ago about your daughter, Bryce, and her directing career. And she said the advice you gave her was that if you're going to succeed in this business, you can't just be good at one thing. Is this you taking your own advice? Just knowing <laughs> that you have to expand your horizons is whenever you can? I think I was also taking into account what I know about Bryce mm. because she's a natural born plate spinner. She's, and you're not? I am. Okay. I am. No, I am. I am. Uh, she's probably better at it <laughs> than, than, uh, than I am. She's, uh, a, a, you know, a natural leader. But I saw her doing plays at, back at NYU uh, when she was in the, the drama program, primarily as an actor. But she's, she's always had, it, it, you know, an interest there. And I've always wanted, I've always wanted to uh, encourage that in her. She teaches a, a class about this now. I mean, she's taught wow. it for several several years at NYU, which is talking to actors about taking command of their creativity, whether professionally or just on a personal level. And um, it all goes back to some advice that Billy Bob Thornton told me that Billy Wilder gave him, which was, hey, if you write, Write every day. Doesn't matter if you ever publish. Doesn't matter if if it if it ever bec- becomes a screenplay. But a creative person needs to be creative every day, not just when they get hired. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think I've always encouraged Bryce to exercise that. She's a good writer too, by the way, and uh, natural producer. So um, I think I was speaking to what I kind of knew were her strengths and just trying to encourage them. Well, the plate spinning is interesting. And I'm always like, whenever I talk to people who, you know, produce and direct and do the things like you do, like, how do you figure out what is worth your time? How do you decide I'm going to commit to this when there are almost infinite options of things that you can work on? And then how do you divide up your days and make it all happen in a single day? It it does almost always come back to, do I think I can, do I think I can contribute something to this? Do I think I can, I can offer audiences something that I'm, that I'm, uh, you know, feel good about about sharing. I, I just don't want to waste people's time. Hmm. Um, and and uh, but you know, it's great to have a partner for all these years. You you know, to bounce ideas off of, and and it's great to be a part of a company where you can sort of see, you know, in people's eyes when a when a concept means something. And I don't only talk to people about projects, you know, who are, happen to be working at Imagine. I'm always trying things out on people. And I'm kind of curious to see where the way I describe it you know, is that landing with people in a way that seems to be stirring something. And I feel like that's a that's a an early good early indicator. It ain't perfect. That if you if you if you look at the filmography, you can see it ain't perfect. But it allows me to believe that if I'm going to invest a year to two years on, in a, on a project, that I'm 
I'm I understand something about it and, mm -hmm. and what it can mean to, to uh, an audience. And um, and of course, I've worked very purposefully, especially, you know, in the first couple of decades of my career to, to really try to get comfortable with various genres uh, because I I wanted to feel confident about it. And frankly, I've always wanted those collaborators that I aspire to work with to also feel that that uh, the, the the genre the style that is required for this particular project, what best suits this particular project, is something that um, that this guy, Ron Howard, can handle and hopefully realize and even maximize. Um, the one thing, though, that over the years, and it sort of gets back to the documentaries in a way, you know, when you, but when you're tackling something that's scripted, it's a kind of an illusion. It's it, you're 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 telling a story. That's what the filmmakers is is doing, and it always requires a, a measure of suspension of disbelief from the audience. You have to earn that from them. And and the one thing that I've found is that you know outside of a couple of obvious fantasies or you know really um, playful projects that I've done, but even with those, to some extent, my approach. Is, is to be as real and grounded as possible in the presentation and sort of slowly but surely kind of draw people in so that there's a relatability and a connection that they have to the characters and ultimately the issues and that premise that we want to try to prove uh, and, 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 and the leaps that we're going to have to take to make it entertaining, to allow it to, to sort of coalesce in and. 90 minutes or two hours into into something that narratively really, you know, moves an audience and excites an audience or entertains in whatever way it's meant to. And, um, you know, and there are lots of other filmmakers that, that do a, a, a great job of kind of announcing up front that you're you're entering a dream. You know, this is a this is a sort of a dream world. And take from it what you will, and and I I admire that. It doesn't seem to be my natural inclination. I may find the story someday where where the, you know that 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 really is right. But but I also just a couple of years ago, I realized, huh, all, that my my dreams are very real. They're hyper real, even if they lead to some ludicrous, absurd, impossible places. They, they look and feel like it, it's, it's happening, like you can touch it and it's real, it's, it's going on. And they also are almost always my point of view. And um, I think a lot of people share that, but I'm, I'm sort of rarely in them. I'm alongside it kind of, I, it's sort of, and, and, um, and I always try to, I, I'm interested in, in audiences feeling like they're drawn into a situation. They relate to it, and they sort of go. They they can go on the journey with those point of view characters, and um, and that's that's how you. That's how I'm. I'm most comfortable, and I think most adept at at creating that sort of that audience empathy, that 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 bridge, that that they um, you know that really serves most stories. 
So one last question for you and looking forward a little bit. I'm curious if this documentary work is something we'll see in 13 Lives, your upcoming movie about the 2018 rescue of the Thai soccer team. Uh, it's a true story. It's a really vivid, visceral, true story. Is your 10 years of documentary work going to feed into that? Definitely, without a doubt. And, and you know, whether I would have gone as far with it as I, as I did, although, I, again, you won't look at 13 Lives and say, oh, it's kind of faux documentary because yeah. I'm actually important for me stylistically not to do that because I, I feel like that it, that that in its own way could be kind of self-conscious. But but I trust a kind of naturalism. I start shooting takes without a lot of rehearsal now, I uh, especially with a story like this. I uh, encourage camera operators to, to um, you know, to be emboldened, to reach for something interesting simply because, you know, the, the that's what the moment seemed to demand. And if it's not what I think I want, I'm patient with that and willing to go back and do another take to, to you know, to make sure we, we you know, photograph the, the, the element that I'm, that I'm, is primary to me. Some people are, because they're both rescue stories and, and, and survival stories, can kind of compare Apollo 13 to 13 lives. And they're, they're shot very differently. It's pretty. It's 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 in. It's definitely interesting. For me, Thirteen Lives was also fascinating because there was this, because um, uh, oh, a good portion of the movie is in Thai, maybe a third, maybe more, forty wow. percent. It's it, and uh, I don't speak that language, but I I went to I went to great lengths to not only get translations but have a process on the set that allowed Thai actors to improvise and share with me their connection to this story because it was it was culturally very personal yeah very very personal to the people one uh, one woman who plays a, a key role not large but very important um, we were shooting and she was just great but I, I just cast her because she auditioned well and 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 I thought she'd be right and she had the northern dialect because she was from the north but she said oh this all happened. 25 minutes from me. She was getting emotional when the you know, on camera. And later she had said, this was, this meant so much to the, the, you know, the people in my village and, and, uh, um, you know, she's a college administrator by career and was living in Australia doing that job, but she'd been there and shared that with me. So it, it was pretty exciting for me and gratifying to work with the range of Thai actors, both highly sophisticated and experienced, and some people who'd never acted uh, before, including this lady, and some and some of the young guys from the most most of the the kids from the soccer team were just kids from the north who had the right had you know the right dialect and could really relate to what was going on. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really excited to see it. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. That's so much uh, to look forward to. Um, and thank you for this film as well. And that does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular show. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. And text with us, as always, at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-809-7096. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um... 
We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right>, nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Shield being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>